We saw in uh, Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, that Paul was in deep anguish for his countrymen, the Jewish people. And he laments the fact that although they were given everything they needed to recognize and accept Jesus as Messiah, they ended up rejecting him. They got all of those promises, all of the patriarchs, all of the covenants, all of the temple worship, all of these things were given to them. They were adopted as children of God. And yet, they rejected Jesus. And we saw that this rejection was not because God's word was not clear. And the rejection was not because God's word was not fulfilled. God's word was completely fulfilled in Jesus. And that's where we pick up today in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. So let's read Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended, descended from Israel are Israel. Not, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now Paul makes a distinction between children of physical descent and children of promise. They're both born in the natural way. There was nothing miraculous about the births, but he's making a distinction about what was the nature of that birth. How did they come? They were of physical descent, off the flesh as such, or children of promise. There was a specific word that God had given, and then he makes a distinction between those who are called by God and those who are not. And he's speaking of the consequences of these differences. Right? We'll continue to see this built out in Romans 9 through 11. But in talking about God fulfilling his purpose in the earth, Paul uses one word, election, to refer to how God dealt differently with people. Figuring out what this word election means and what it implies for how we live, evangelize, and prepare for the future has led to a rather heated debate and marked disagreement between large groups of Christians for many generations. This has been this point of contention. 
starting primarily in the fourth century, so quite a few years after the church was in, in, had come to being, and quite a few centuries after Paul has written this letter here, starting primarily in the fourth century, the word election in the Bible came to be regarded as the action of God where certain individuals, the elect, were predestined for salvation, while others, not the elect, were doomed to hell. So that's how this line of thinking started to develop. And the underlying thought was that human beings are so totally depraved and sinful that there is nothing that they can do by themselves to be saved. Instead, God chooses those that he will show his grace to. So according to this line of thought, salvation is therefore limited to those that are predestined to be saved. Okay? And this, this idea of predestination was predestination by God was popularized by John Calvin in his Reformation teachings in the 16th century, so much, much later, and came to be known as Calvinism. So if you've heard that term, if you've heard people referring to that, that's what that is about. John Calvin and his teachings and so on, that was, came to be known as Calvinism. The opposing viewpoint was that although human beings cannot save themselves, God desires to save all and allows individuals to respond to and accept or to resist and reject the grace of God. So it's not just that God is choosing, it's that God is allowing a person to either respond to or accept the Lord and his grace or to resist and reject the grace of God. Okay? This is the, the other opposing viewpoint. And this understanding was most notably articulated by Jacobus Arminius. And so this line of thinking came to be known as Arminianism. So you have Calvinism and Arminianism. Okay? There's a whole lot of detail about this. And I want to be very clear about this one point. Both Calvinists and Arminianists hold to the core gospel message. They both agree that Jesus came to atone for the sins of humanity to restore human beings in relationship with God. The question, the question that arises because of these two lines of thought is whether all human beings or only some human beings are eligible for that restoration. That's where the point of contention comes in. Now, you can grapple with these questions, you can go after it, there's a whole bunch of things and scriptures and others that I can point to, but let's just go back a few verses to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, just a few verses before what we read this morning. And we read this through before, when we, you know, a few weeks ago, but I want to go read it again. Romans 8, 28 through 30 says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, 
that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. When we read these verses a few weeks ago, I said that we would come back to Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, when we got to Romans 9, because at that time, our focus was primarily on Romans chapter 8, verse 28, on God working all things together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Right? That was our focus a few weeks ago. And that work of God, that work of God in those that love him, in calling and having purpose for them and so on, that work of God to bring things to good in their lives, and that good, like I said, is not about material goodness, it's not about physical goodness, it's about our good being that we would be more like Jesus, that we would be in Christ, that we, he would be in us, that we would be filled in the Holy Spirit. That's the good that the Lord is working in us, that we would be transformed into his image in every way. And so when we talked about this, we said that that work of God is important. It sets the context for understanding predestination and election. Because if you notice in Romans chapter 8 verse 29, the foreknowledge and predestination of God go hand in hand. God who exists outside of time and space and sees the beginning and the end all at once foreknows everything that will happen to every human being. He knows who will resist him and who will submit to him. His predestination then, as we just read here, is to transform to conform those who love him into the image of Jesus. The statement about predestination here, and I believe this, is it's not referring to the salvation of an individual human being, but rather pointing out that the impact of God's salvation on the body of Christ as a whole, the impact of God's salvation on all those who believe, is to conform them to the image of the Son. You see the difference? It is not that you are predestined to be saved. It's that you are predestined to be conformed to the image of the, of, the, of the Lord when you are saved. There is that communal, there is that body of Christ message that is there. And it's not specifically speaking about individual salvation. Now, mind you, as I say this, you may have pl heard plenty of argument against this point. And there may be a different thought in your mind about this. I'm glad to talk about that and we can get into that and so on. But here's the point of view that I'm expressing as we go forward and why I will, and I'll expand on this through the next few weeks also. But here's the thing. All believers, all believers are in fact predestined to be conformed to the image of God. The difference is how much of that transformation takes place in our life. Now you may yield and submit and allow the Holy Spirit to work in you so that 90% of your life is transformed. 
Or you may not yield and not obey and not be walking in the ways of the Lord and only 5% of your life is transformed. I mean, there could be varying degrees of the work of the Lord in someone's life. And clearly the Bible speaks of progression and maturing and change and so on that is not going to be equal. So it's not that everybody in the body of Christ is equally mature, is equally aware, is equally filled, is equally gifted. We mature, we receive, we give out as the Lord works in each one of us individually. However, we're all being transformed. We're not left out. We don't come to the Lord Jesus and even as we sang this morning, we don't say, oh God, we, we thank you that you are our loving Heavenly Father and then the Father says, you, okay, you not so okay. I mean, he's, he's transforming all of us together into his image. He's working in us. He's revealing sin. He's convicting us and showing us how we can become holy because he is holy. He is working in us that we would be like him. So in Romans chapters 9 through 11, it is the same sort of communal aspect. It is this communal versus individual aspect of God's salvation that we are really seeing that are most relevant because Paul is referring to the children of Israel as a whole. He gives these examples and I'll get to that in a second, but he's really referring to the nation of Israel, the children of Israel as a whole. And he's saying, here's what I wish that all of my fellow countrymen were saved. Right? And he's talking about it in those ways. I, the, these promises of God and these word of God, this word, this, this, these prophecies were given to all of the children of Israel. Right? He's speaking of it in a communal sense. And Paul's desire, when he's desi expressing his desire for all of his countrymen to be saved, it is in spite of, he knows very well that many have and many will continue to reject the gospel. He's not saying, oh, I desire for all my countrymen to be saved and they will be saved. Right? There, um, we'll get to that too in a couple of weeks' time. But he is aware that many have already rejected the Lord and many will continue to reject the Lord. But he expresses his heart desire for this transformation. And he is referring to those that rejected the gospel as having done so through unbelief and disobedience. And we're actually going to get to that specific verse in just a little bit, you know, a couple, few more weeks' time. But he's saying... These folks that rejected the Lord Jesus did so because of their unbelief and their disobedience. They forfeited the grace of God. He's not referring to them as those that were not chosen by God. He could have. right? He could have in that very instance said, God did not choose them, therefore they rejected the Messiah. There's where the promises, there's where the you know, things that God had given, there's where all these things. But God didn't choose them, therefore they rejected the Messiah. He didn't say that. He says they rejected, they were not, they did not receive the grace of God because of their unbelief and their disobedience. Right? So he's making that distinction. Now, he uses the examples of Isaac and Ishmael, the sons of Abraham, one by Sarah and another by Hagar, and he uses the examples of Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac, Isaac the son of Abraham, and then Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac. And he uses their example to talk about God's promises and God's choices, both of which have to do with God's 
foreknowledge. God promised a son to Abraham through Sarah. But even before Isaac was born, God knew. He foreknew that because of impatience and unbelief, Ishmael, the son of the flesh and not the promise, would be born. God said of Esau and Jacob, before even they were born, that the elder would serve the younger. Again, God knew, he foreknew that Esau would disdain his birthright and then go against Isaac and Jacob. So he speaks about it in those terms. And so he's giving these examples, saying God, God's already knowing this and he speaks in these terms. But there is a phrase in Romans chapter 13, uh, pardon me, Romans chapter 9 verse 13 that we have to address. And it says, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And you read that and you go, oh, before even they were born, God said this? But you have to understand that that phrase, just as it is written, Esau, I mean, uh, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, that's not coming from Genesis. It was not written in Genesis. Genesis has the account of the birth of Jacob, uh, pardon me, of Jacob and Esau and of uh, Isaac, Ishmael, all that. We read about that in Genesis, right? This verse about how God deals with Esau and Jacob in that sense, that's coming from Malachi chapter 1, many, many years later. And so go to Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Listen to what it says. It says, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi, the nation of Israel, right? Through Malachi, the prophet. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? So the children of Israel are bringing up sort of this contention or charge against God. And they're saying, well, what about Esau? And what about this? And what about that? And it's almost like they're arguing with God when God says, I have loved you. And then he says, but you ask, how have, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom, which is another word for Esau, Esau was also known as Edom, Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. Do you understand? He's not talking about Jacob and Esau before they were born. He's talking about the descendants of Esau, the Edomites, and the descendants of Jacob, Israel, the children of Israel. And he's saying, I have done this. I have brought judgment on the Edomites. Why? Because the Edomites were a wicked nation. Esau and his descendants turned away from the Lord. And they were perpetual enemies of the children of Israel. 
And so God in his care for and love for the children of Israel brings judgment on the Edomites. And so he says in this context, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. So you must understand this. God is responding to the Israelites, questioning his love for them and for Esau. And he is pointing out, he is showing that because of their rejection, their defiance, and their enmity with the children of Israel, because God knew, because God foreknew that the Edomites would remain perpetual enemies of the children of Israel, he makes this statement, not about Esau individually, but about the Edomites collectively. You see it? So, and here's another important point to keep in mind. The word hate in Romans chapter 9, verse 13 there, it's a very strong word, hate. You know? And there are other times that the word hate is used of how God feels about something. The Bible says that God hates wickedness. God hates idolatry. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 through 19 states, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. It says the, the Lord hates these things. And it's important for us to keep in mind that this, that in this hatred of God, there is no malice. There is no vindictiveness. There is no bitterness. It's not, oh, I'm so angry with this. I hate that. It's not, it's not the emotion that we are associating with the word hate. This is God in all of his goodness and in all of his mercy and in all of his love, hating, rightly hating, that which is not good. Do you see what that is? So when we see this verse, understand the context. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. What does he really mean? And why does he use that word hate? What is the point there? The point, as we've seen here, and I think it should be pretty clear by now that I don't believe that Romans chapter 9 verses 6 through 13 is teaching that some people will never receive grace and that others will receive irresistible grace. These are the terms that are used, right? I don't believe that it's some people will receive, will never receive grace and others will receive irresistible grace. They have no, no option than to, you know, accept. I'll address more of this as we go through the rest of chapters 9 through 11. We can follow up in our sermon discussions and so on. There's a lot more that can be said about this topic. There's more to understand about this and especially about this fact. When we choose God, we do so strictly because God has opened our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't merit salvation. We don't earn salvation by our good works. We don't say, oh, you know, one fine day we say, mm, I think I'll be saved. You know, it's not up to us. We're not doing that. Only God is responsible for our salvation. When we fail to choose God, we do so strictly because we have closed our hearts. We have preferred our flesh, the world, and the devil over the word and the spirit. We are responsible, and only we are responsible 
for our condemnation. So there's a lot more to be unpacked about those kinds of statements and we can go into that. And like I said, we'll get into some of these things in the next few chapters even, as we complete you know, chapters 9 through 11. And this debate between Calvinists and Arminianists is ongoing. There are no easy resolutions to the disagreements. But I want, however, to return to two important points from this passage that every one of us can agree on. And the first point of agreement is this. God's word has not failed. God's word has not failed. That's what Paul is making clear. Paul says God's word has not failed. Even if you look at the things and you say, oh, look, you know, God gave all these promises, none of these people accepted. Oh, maybe God's word failed. We, what do we do? We analyze God's word. We evaluate God's word based on what we see. Based on our interpretation. Based on our point of view. Based on our expectations. But Paul's making clear. Well, God's word has not failed. And he says, it doesn't matter. And essentially what he's saying and what I'm you know, bringing out as such is this. It doesn't matter how different groups of Christians in interpret scripture. It doesn't matter whether we got the translation exactly right. It doesn't matter whether we agree with one point of view or another. It doesn't matter if what we want is different from what the word of, what, what the word of God says will happen. The word of God, what he has communicated as he has communicated it, not how we interpret it, but as the word of God as he has communicated it in what he is intending, has not and will not fail. What God has said will come to pass. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So that's a point of agreement right there. We say, you know what? I'm not sure about all these different kinds of things and what's what the argument is, but I know one thing. God's word has not failed. God's word has not failed. And here's our second point of agreement. God's purpose will stand. God's purpose will stand. Paul's emphasis, his confidence in Romans chapter 9 verse 11, is that the purpose of God will always be fulfilled. Whatever means is necessary. Whatever way he does that. Whether he chooses or not, or whether we respond or not, it doesn't matter. God's purpose will be fulfilled. God's purpose will stand. God's purpose for the children of Israel. His purpose for those that have been joined into the children of Israel. We have been grafted in, and we're going to get to more of that too. But God's purpose for the children of Israel, God's purpose for those that have been joined to the children of Israel, His purpose for the world at large, all of His purposes will stand. They will be fulfilled. And so here's the important truth that we've got to come back to when we see that. God is sovereign. God is over all. Nothing happens without his allowing it. Now this can be difficult for us to comprehend and even accept, especially when we know that some people are perishing. Especially when somebody we love, we, know, we care for is perishing. We say, oh, how can God be sovereign? 
when we witness pain and suffering, when we see all that is going on in the world around us, and we say, if, if God is sovereign, why doesn't he just step in? Why doesn't he intervene? Why is there evil if God is good, if God is sovereign? We can ask those questions. But as we've learned in the past, we don't have all those answers. Yet, we have one very clear truth. God is a Lord over all. He is the Lord of lords. He is over all of these circumstances. Nothing is happening anywhere to anyone at any time without him knowing or without him allowing, without him being sovereign over it. That's important. We can't look at all these things and we can't come into these arguments and say, well, maybe God just put the world in motion and stepped back. You know that this is a way of thinking. There are people who will say that to you. God, even if there is a God, he set the world in motion and then he stepped back. It's just running on its own now. You know, and it's going on. And it's up to us. No. God is sovereign. God is actively engaged. He cares about each one of us. He loves us. He manifests that love to us every single day. And God is at work. Which means that we have to respond and apply this word of God that we have heard by trusting God who is fair, who is just, and who is sovereign. You have a question about this? You have doubts about it? You are wondering, you know, how should I think about this? Here's the thing. You've got to start with. You've got to keep coming back to. You have to rely on. You have to have a foundation that says, I trust in a God who is fair, just, and sovereign. All of that. And we're going to get into more of the fairness and justice of God in coming weeks. But I want to you know, just keep on emphasizing this because, let's see, last week when we ended, I ended by saying that we want to have the heart of the Lord who does not want anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. That's what we read. The Lord does not want anyone to perish but wants everyone to come to repentance. And we saw that and we understand that and so on. But unlike the Lord who knows, who foreknows, who is aware of everything that is about to happen. We don't know who will come to repentance. So when the Lord says, it's my desire, I wish that all would come to repentance, and we don't know specifically, Jane will, John won't, we have a responsibility to simply obey, to go into all the world and make disciples, to tell them about Jesus. And to say, Lord, let me be full of you so that I can open my mouth and tell somebody about Jesus. That's it. But when I do, oh, Lord God, let them be saved. Let them come to know you. Let them be saved. That's the anguish of Paul's heart. That's the, the challenge that I was raising last week too. Do we call out with that kind of compassion and anguish for others? Do we say, oh, God, even if it were possible for me to be blotted out of the book of life, for me to be cut off for the sake of these people, save them. Would we cry out to the Lord like that? Because here, when we have that responsibility to go into all the world and make disciples, 
There is a mystery as to how the sovereign will of God and the will of human beings work together in the process of salvation. I can't tell you every single detail about that. I can't definitively say to you, this is exactly how that happens. And then when this happens and this is spoken, then this is the response. Right? I can't do that. For, But in the middle of that mystery, I can be sure of this one thing. I can trust God that he will pull, fulfill his purpose for every single human being with total fairness, with complete justice, and in control of every detail of their lives. That's what I can be assured of. That's what I can trust in. That's the confidence that I can have. So when Paul is laying out all of these things, he's not really debating the process of salvation. He's saying the purpose of God will be fulfilled. And so we can trust him. So this morning, you know, we, uh, you know, I was preparing for this message and I was reading through and reading through and, you know, it reinforces some of these things. And, but I was reading a number of different articles and different things in preparation to look at this. And like I said, there's a lot of debate on this. A lot of debate. A lot of very learned people who have gone through much study and will present a very different point of view than what I've expressed this morning. So I'm not, I'm not at all saying to you, this is it. Go, study, read, pray, wait on the Lord. Here, what I'm doing and what we will continue to do is to emphasize those things that we can agree on and those things that I believe are at the core of where we need to be. And those are very simple, very straightforward. Our mission is very simple. We love God, we love people, we make disciples. What does that mean? That we understand the message of salvation, the gospel message, and we share that message in its simplicity, and we leave the results to God. And we're not concerned or anxious about what happens and what doesn't happen. We are faithful to what the Lord calls us to do. That's what we're going to emphasize here. So, like I said, I'm glad to get into any conversation about this. But we're not looking to debate this. We're looking to live out what the Lord has called us to. So this morning, I want to encourage you. And I want to, I want to keep reminding you, go read chapters 9 through 11 again. Read 1 through 11. Read 1 through 16. Just read the whole book through. Just read it as it goes through. Don't read it with any preconceived notion. Just read the word. And see what the word is saying. Look at how he speaks about the children of Israel. Look at how he talks about salvation and all of the things that are there. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. That would give wisdom and instruction to us. But this morning, I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. That you'll come to the Lord and you say, Lord God, prepare me. Prepare me. Help me. Grant me grace. Oh, to stand for you. And to declare your word without question. Let's just take a few minutes and pray. And we ask the Lord and we say, Lord God, you move into my heart. You move in my life. You do this work in me so that I will not be looking to be proved right about what I believe or my doctrine. But rather, I will be, looked, I will be looking to be proved obedient. That the Lord would look at me and say, you are faithful, well done, you are obedient. 
You know, even as we sang this morning, to enter into the rest of the Father. The qualification was faithfulness and obedience. Well done, good and faithful servant. Just be faithful, be obedient. Reach out to him and say, Lord God, I will come to you. I will worship you. I will serve you. Let's spend a few minutes in prayer and ask the Lord to prepare our hearts to work in us. That Lord, help me. Help me to speak your word. Help me in every opportunity that I get, in whatever happens, to speak your word, to declare your truth, to let people be known, to, to let people know Jesus in all his fullness, in all his glory, to let people be drawn to Jesus. Hallelujah. Oh, and then to leave everything else to the Lord. Cast all the negotiations to the Lord. Cast all the cares to the Lord. And say, Lord God, you do your work. You do your work. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you that your word is wonderful, life-giving, encouraging, instructing, convicting, illuminating. I thank you that your word is given for us. And I pray, Father, that we will never get caught up in the argument of your word, in the critique of your word, but rather, Lord, we will be entirely given to, caught up in the obedience of your word. And Lord, you have given us some very simple commands, some very simple things that are very clear. That we would indeed go into all the world and preach the gospel. That we would indeed go into all the world and make disciples. That we would indeed encounter those around us and pray for them with a compassion and an anguish and a care that says, Oh God, I wish to see these folks saved. I wish to see them come to repentance. Lord God, touch them. Let your Holy Spirit move in them. Bring them to yourself. Let your grace, your common grace, that is evident in creation around us and in evident in the world around us and evident in our conscience and evident in so many different ways. Lord, let it all move into that special grace where, Lord, these folks will hear the message of Jesus Christ. Lord, even in a few weeks, we will be, the world will celebrate the birth of Jesus. The idea that the, the truth that Jesus, God himself, came into this world as a man for my sake, for our sake. And that when we believe, when we receive, when we accept, oh, you don't just leave us in that state with just a little bit more knowledge and just a little bit more acceptance of you, no, you transform us. You make us like you. You remove our false and ungodly thinking. You cause us to take captive our thoughts. You enable us to come to you in repentance. And you change us. Oh Lord God, we welcome that. We receive that.
We plead for that. Hallelujah. Lord, and as that transformation takes place in us, help us, Lord, to be actively engaged in seeing that transformation take place in others. Encouraging them. Sharing with them. Building them up. Speaking words of grace. Timely words. Apt words. Serving others. That they may be built up in you. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you that as a church, collectively, Lord God, we are so grateful that your word has not and will not fail. We are so grateful that your purpose will be fulfilled. Your purpose for each one of us individually. Your purpose for our families, for our neighborhoods. Lord, the communities that you have brought us into, the boundaries of our dwellings. Your purpose for this church. Your purpose for the body of Christ. And Lord, your purpose for this world. As distressing as it is that, Lord, many perish, I thank you that many are saved. And we pray that your purpose for many to come to repentance, for many to know you, for many to be in the kingdom of God, Oh, Lord God, let that purpose be truly, completely fulfilled, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I thank you that you know everything about us. You foreknow everything about what, what we will do. And yet you love us. You have cared for us. You have given of yourself for us. We thank you. Let us go out, Lord, with that knowledge, with that truth, with that confidence, Lord, with that blessing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.